morning, everyone. It is a joy and pleasure to be with you once again. Uh, please turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians. Philippians, and we'll be reading a passage from chapter 1. Philippians 1, and we'll begin reading in the second half of verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, as now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain." If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with the Lord, be with Christ, pardon, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Amen. Let's ask now for God's blessing as we study his word. Oh, great God, we thank you that we can come to you now the God whose greatness we have heard extolled, the God whose love and mercy we have heard tell of. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to you, this great God and merciful God, knowing that we come to a God who speaks to his people. Lord, we pray that you would speak a word to all who need to hear from you today, that to the soul whose heart is weary, full, full of weary, the one whose head is drooping, you might speak words of comfort. Lord, to the one who may be trusting in himself or herself, may you speak a word of conviction and point them to the gospel. Lord, we know that your word can accomplish these many things by the Spirit's power, and so we do depend upon you, Holy Spirit. Move and work among us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. If I were to ask you what your greatest fear was, I wonder what you would say. We may have those small phobias which sound funny and which don't often sound like the word that they represent. For example, my daughter recently overcame a fear of globophobia, which you may or may not know is the fear of balloons. She had a great fear of balloons until recently she discovered that balloons are a lot of fun and can make very odd noises, and so she began to love balloons. But there are also fears which are not fears that we should laugh at. There are fears which each one of us would have felt from time to time. One of the most common of these fears is the fear of the future. Some people call it anticipatory fear. That fear of the unknown that anxiety and worry which comes from being uncertain about what is to come. 
Not too long ago, I went through a period where I wasn't sure what my coming year would look like with work and responsibilities, and that was a time of fear in that way. And as we look at God's Word, and as we look at this passage today, Paul says in verse 18, I will rejoice. He rejoices in the future. And knowing ourselves, we cannot help but ask the question, how is this possible? Worry in the future makes perfect sense to us. But how can we rejoice in something that is unknown? How can we rejoice in something that seems unsure? The Philippian church, by way of reminder, had begun to experience persecution. They began to experience pressure from outside the church that was starting to crowd in. Verse 30 of Philippians 1 says that this church was now engaged in the same conflict that they heard that Paul had and now still has. Remember, Paul is in Rome. He is in prison. And so for the Philippian church to hear that they now are in this same fight, they now are experiencing this same persecution, gives us an insight to perhaps a reason why Paul writes this passage today. Not only this, but the persecution from outside had started to create cracks and fissures in the church itself. Pressure from outside, as I'm sure you can relate to, can sometimes cause pressures on the inside to erupt. Maybe difficulty or trials in your job can lead to division and strife at home at times. And so much of the letter of Philippians is written to encourage them to pursue this gospel fellowship, this unity that they share and must pursue. In that same paragraph that Paul writes about their conflict, he encourages them that they may stand firm in verse 27. They may strive side by side. And in verse 28, they may not be frightened by their opponents. The Philippians' future was uncertain. They didn't know what the next day of persecution would bring. And so like the Philippians, an uncertain future can rob us of joy. Like the Philippians, an uncertain future can rob us of joy. But the promise of this passage, and indeed the promise of the whole letter, is that because of Christ, Christian, you can rejoice in the future. Because of Christ, your future is certain, therefore rejoice in the future. And so we're going to see three reasons why we ought to rejoice in the future. And by way of reminder, verse 18, that beginning part of the verse, gives us that phrase, rejoicing in the future. Up until this point, Paul has been rejoicing in what has gone before and what is happening currently. He says in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul has told the Philippian church that things have taken place which on the surface seem like they would have obstructed the proclamation of the gospel. There have been those who have started to proclaim the gospel with impure motives. And Paul said, 
Contrary to what we might think, verse 12, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. And in this, verse 18, he rejoices. So having rejoiced in what has happened, Paul now turns and says, the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. So why? Why, Paul, can you rejoice in your future? Read with me verse 19. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So our first point, rejoice in the future because your salvation is secure. Rejoice in the future because your salvation is secure. Now you might be saying, Josh, I don't see that word salvation there. Well, the word salvation that we often see in our Bibles is that same word that is translated there as deliverance. You might be wondering, well, why, why translate it as deliverance if that's the case? And we need to ask ourselves why or what kind of deliverance Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about deliverance from his chains or is he talking about a different kind of deliverance? Paul says he is confident, he is sure, he knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. Verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Here's the key part, whether by life or by death. And so if Paul says, I know I will be delivered, whether I live or whether I die, what kind of deliverance must in fact be in view? This is not deliverance from his chains or deliverance from prison primarily. This is Paul's ultimate salvation. Paul writes to the Philippian church and says, I will rejoice because I know my salvation is secure. I know that it is not ultimately based on my chains which are around my wrist. I know that deliverance, salvation will take place. And so the, the first way that we see this is we see security in the midst of salvation. Security in the midst of, pardon me, suffering. Security in the midst of suffering. Verse 19, Paul is saying that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that this will turn out. What is, what is the this that is in mind? What is that referring to? It's referring to his present sufferings, his present situation in prison. Paul is saying that this will turn out. A stronger way to say that may be, this will result in my salvation. Oftentimes we think of things like sufferings, things like persecution as being an obstacle for our salvation. We'd say to ourselves, if anything would make me turn back, if anything would make me lose my salvation, it would be persecution, sufferings, trials. And Paul says exactly the opposite, that there is a secure salvation even in the midst of his sufferings. More than that, if we want to state it even stronger, these sufferings are going to work out and result in his deliverance. These sufferings will turn out for my deliverance, he says. If you want to say it another way, Paul's deliverance before the king of heaven 
is more certain than Paul's deliverance before the king of Rome. Paul's deliverance before the king of heaven, that is, Paul's ultimate salvation of going to be with the Lord, that is more secure than the outcome before Caesar. Paul admits that there is still some level of uncertainty in his future. But what's not uncertain is that he will feel and experience this full and final salvation in the day to come. In verses 12 to the first part of verse 18, Paul, as I've mentioned already, has gone through some of the obstacles for the spread of the gospel. And he's said that instead of working against the gospel, these things have actually served to advance the gospel. And what he says now is that these obstacles, these sufferings, these persecutions, these trials that I've gone to, this has actually served to bring about and is bringing about my full and final salvation. Friends, the road to heaven is the road of suffering. When you suffer, when you experience trials of many kinds, you are not in the midst of something that is somehow working against your salvation. But just as your salvation is secure, so too sufferings are actually bringing you through to that great and glorious day to come. So there is security in the midst of suffering. Second, in this first point, we see that there is security through prayer and the work of the Spirit. Paul says that he knows that this will happen through, verse 19 still, your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The means that God is using is the prayers of the Philippian church. The Philippian church is perhaps one of the nearest and dearest to Paul's heart, and they are praying for him. Already in the chapter, we have seen that Paul cares deeply for them and prays for them on several occasions. Now we see that this is, in fact, a two-way street. This is, in fact, a mutual relationship that they have been praying for him that he might know this security, that he might be strengthened in trial, that he might know God's peace in great difficulty. Beloved, do you pray for your pastor, for your elders? Do you pray that they might have their hearts uplifted in times of trial? I think it's easy to think that if anybody doesn't need our prayers, it would be our pastors or our elders. But Paul was so grateful for the Philippians' prayers. If we were to say to ourselves, has there ever been a a person who might not have needed our prayers? We might say, well, maybe the Apostle Paul. But, But he puts that to rest so very quickly. Christianity is not a lone ranger religion. It's not something we do on our own. It's not something that we try and work at by ourselves. Our secure salvation is brought about in a human way by these prayers. God works through human means. God works through the local church. God works through the prayers of others on your behalf to bring you safely home. It's not as though that should make us think that somehow our eternal salvation is in doubt, but rather our eternal salvation is being brought about by the prayers of God's people. 
not only the prayers of God's people, but on the divine side, we also see the Spirit at work. Paul, again in verse 19, says that not only your prayers, but also the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit promised in John 16, the helper, the comforter, the advocate, the one who will strengthen his people in their time of need. It can be easy for those of us who believe as we do that salvation is secure. When we believe that, it can be easy for us to become desensitized and all of a sudden cold and distant to the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing that to its completion. Just because we believe and confess that salvation is secure in Christ does not mean that the Spirit all of a sudden is left out along the way to heaven. Rather, the Holy Spirit is at work along the way through these trials and pitfalls of many kinds to bring us safely home. So we have security in the midst of suffering, security through prayer and the Spirit, and then finally, security as a motivation. Look with me at verse 20. Paul says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's talking here that his assurance, his secure hope in his salvation. This has motivated him. This has strengthened him. This has led him to have courage in Christ. This has led him to want to honor Christ, whether by life or by death. Assurance, knowing that you are saved, is not an obstacle to obedience. Rather, it is a great motivator of obedience. A Roman Catholic cardinal, just after the time of the Reformation, wrote that one of the greatest errors of the Reformers was the doctrine of assurance. The doctrine that you could know with confidence, with certainty, that Jesus really did pay for your sins. He called that a great heresy. Later, the Council of Trent They said that anyone who says that they know for sure that they are saved, this doctrine of assurance, let that person be anathema. Let them be damned. They said that because they argue that if someone is really sure that they are saved, they are confident in the work of Christ, what were they likely to do in their view? Go on living as any way they wish? Go on sinning in every way? Paul deals with that in the book of Romans, doesn't he? Romans 6 comes right after Romans 5, that clear presentation of justification by faith alone. In Romans 6, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Right? The, the, the Bible and the Gospel teach us that when we know, when we have a certain assurance, when we have hope in the promises of God, that will lead us to obedience rather than be an obstacle for obedience. I'll say it another way, the 1689 Latin Baptist Confession in chapter 18 says that love, obedience, thankfulness are all fruits of assurance. Fruits of assurance. 
That assurance is a motivator in our Christian lives. And so when Paul says in verse 20 that he has this eager expectation and desire and passion and focus that Christ would be honored in his body, that comes about not because he's trying to work his way to God, but because he knows his salvation is secure. Paul has experienced this security in the midst of suffering, security through the prayers of the Philippians and the work of the Spirit, and security as a motivation. And our second major point is to rejoice in your future because you belong to Christ. Christian, if you are sitting here and you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you have experienced this great change. You have gone from belonging to yourself and to the world to now belonging to Christ. And Paul says that in verse 21 like this. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Christian, you belong to Christ in your life. In this life, in the life that you live, you belong to Christ. And what are the implications of that? Well, think of all the things that the world says, this is what it means to live. You may say, to live, the essence of living is to have a good job. The essence of living is to have a family. The essence of living is to have a career that can allow you to retire in comfort, to travel, to explore the world. All these things are ways that the world says, this is what it means to live. Earlier in the chapter, in verse 17, Paul says that others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. For that person, instead of saying to live is Christ, they might say to live is self. That's our natural state. That's what we all thought living once was. Ephesians chapter 2 begins with that famous couple of verses which remind us that we are actually dead in our trespasses and sins. It's as if we were animated corpses, alive but not really alive. Augustine said that God has made us for himself and we are restless until we find our rest in him. And so in your life, Christian, you belong to Christ. Christ has purchased you with his blood. He has united you to himself. And he now serves as not only the animating power, but also the purpose to which we are to live. Maybe the clearest and fullest explanation of this comes to us in Galatians chapter 2. In verse 20, Paul says there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christian, in life, you belong to Christ. But the wonderful reminder that Paul gives immediately afterwards is that Christian, you belong to Christ in death also. Your life is Christ's as you live it, but also you belong to Christ in death. In verse 21, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
to die being gain. How could that be? How could it be that dying would be a gain? It's as if Paul says living is good, but dying is better. How could that be? We need to remember that this is dependent on the first clause. Only for those whose life is Christ will dying be a gain. It's not as though we can picture this as some kind of release from the body, that death is good for everyone because life is hard, or life is painful, or because of their suffering. But only for those whose life is in Christ, whose life belongs to Christ, they will experience death as a gain. They'll experience union more fully realized with Christ. The Apostle John reminds us in chapter 3 of his first letter that we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Beloved, if you are a Christian here today, your life is not the only thing that belongs to Christ, but you belong to him in death also. You belong to him in death. He is yours and you are his. But if you're sitting here tonight and if you're like me and you look at that and and you say to yourself, "I, I like my life. And I enjoy my life and I'm not sure I'm ready to die and I'm not sure I'm able to echo with Paul that dying would be a gain in every sense. I want to say that there's validity to that feeling. And it helps if we understand what, what Paul is getting at here. Paul is not looking at the future morbidly or with an intense focus on how good death would be. That's not what's taking place. Instead, he's, he's saying that the effect of death, the result of death, instead of being a loss of everything which we've had in this life, is actually a gain of the very best thing we've had in this life. If in this life the very best thing that we have is Christ, beloved, I can promise you that death will be a gain or an increase of that rather than a loss of Christ. It's not as though you need to say to yourself, right now today, I would actually rather lose all the good things of my life and die because dying is so good in and of itself. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that the very best thing of your present life, i.e. Christ, you will experience even more of him should you die. So, beloved, why are we able to rejoice in the future? We have seen that salvation is secure, but also because you belong to Christ. You belong to him if you are his. This passage sounds so familiar and has so many echoes of that famous question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. That question that begins, Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? It answers that I am not my own, but belong in body, in soul, in life, and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. But how does it end right at the end? Further, or moreover, Because I belong to him, Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. 
That's what we've already seen. That belonging to Christ doesn't just end with us all of a sudden saying, I don't care how I live because dying is going to be great. Instead, what God does is he uses this assurance, that idea that we no longer have to work for our rest, but we now work from our rest. He uses that to make us ready and able to live for him. And so our third and final point, rejoice because of the fellowship that you share. Rejoice because of the fellowship that you share. After saying in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul goes into a bit of an aside. It's like he has a conversation with himself off stage. And he, he really does give these two options. And he, he says, dying, yes, would be of a gain to me, but he says that there is something more pressing and more necessary. He says, verse 22, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The dilemma is between what is better and what is necessary. And if you are going to say to yourself, if ever there was a time where it was okay to be selfish, surely it would have been okay to be selfish and say, I want more of Christ, like Paul did there. That if, if Paul was really faced with that option of gaining more of Christ, verse 21, surely it would have been okay to be selfish in that instance. And yet that knowledge of belonging to Christ, that rejoicing in the future, those are the precise things which actually motivate him to look elsewhere. Motivate him to look towards others. We saw at the beginning that the, the pressure that was building in Philippi, the external persecution that was mounting, that those things were working to create divisions in the church. And, and what Paul does here is he's able to say that knowing these first two things, the security of your salvation, the fact that you belong to Christ, these things will enable you to rejoice in the future. In Philippian church, and I would say to you, Christians here tonight, when you rejoice in these things, you are also going to be able to rejoice because of the fellowship that you share. Instead of the competition that might exist or the frustration that might arise because of pressures that you face, you'll be able to enjoy this sweet, sweet fellowship. Paul first gives an indication as to the motivation of fellowship. He says in verse 25 that he will remain and continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. The reasons for this fellowship, the reason for his returning is so that they might grow more and more like Christ. That the purpose of our fellowship likewise is for the good of others' souls, not just the fun that we share as important as that may be. Gospel fellowship, gospel relationships, the fact that we are partners as Paul and the Philippian church were 
this is a great motivating factor and strengthening factor in our Christian lives. So the motivation of fellowship was for the Philippian church's growth. These are also the the blessings of fellowship, that they would be mutually encouraged and strengthened. Paul has already said in verse 19 that it was the Philippian church's prayers which have enabled him to withstand the trials he faced. And we might ask ourselves, what what is the nature of this fellowship? What is this fellowship like? Well, it's fellowship as we've seen time and time again in Philippians. It's fellowship in the gospel. Verse 5, this is that partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And so Christian, as you face difficulties and trials of every kind, I don't know what each individual may be going through, but I'm confident that each one of us is going through some kind of trial as we face the uncertainty of the future, you can know that even though the details remain fuzzy, these great pillars and truths remain firm. You can know with certainty that salvation is secure in Christ alone. You can know with certainty that you belong to Christ. And Christian, you can know with certainty that you share gospel fellowship with other Christians that God has placed that in your life for your good. Beloved, the particulars of our lives are unknown to us, but the Lord, time and again in His Word, says that He knows all of these particulars. But may we rejoice, because He has seen it fit to make these events of our future known to us also. He has seen fit to make it known that this salvation is secure. He's seen it fit to make known that we belong to Christ. And he's seen fit to make it known that we share gospel fellowship. What a great mercy and blessing from our Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that each one here might know and find true rest and comfort in the promises given to us this evening in your word. Lord, may none depart from here unsure of where they stand as they face an uncertain future. Lord, thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf, which brings us these rich blessings for the future to come. Cause us to rejoice in them, O Lord, even when we are tempted to worry, to be afraid. All of these things which are so native to our human condition, cause us, Lord, to be borne up in hope and encouragement from your word we ask. In Christ's precious name we pray.